Hello, everybody, and welcome to part one of the American Shoreline Podcast Network summer kickoff, our Memorial Day special. Peter, it is part one. We are taking a tour around the American Shoreline to find out what's going on this summer, man. Like, we are kicking it off the right way here. We're going to travel around. We're ringing up our friends. We're ringing up strangers. And, uh... We're going to kick this thing off the right way, right? We're going to find out what's going on on the American shoreline. You know, summer's, this is the big weekend. This is the Memorial Day weekend. So the beaches are about to get busy. And uh, I'm really looking forward to it. We're going to talk to people from Maine down to Florida, over to Texas, on the California coast, and up to Pacific Northwest. Find out what everybody's up to and getting ready for the summer season. So, yeah, going to be a good show. It's a crazy place, that American shoreline. But before we get into it, let's have a quick word from our sponsors. As always, I want to thank Bill Worsham and his crew at LJA Engineering. They've been a steady, regular supporter of the American Shoreline Podcast Network and Coastal News today. Bill Worsham, great coastal engineer with a great team, 28 offices around the Gulf of Mexico. Don't miss them. Find them at LJA.com. And, of course, we want to thank our good good friend uh michael poff out of naples florida with coastal engineering consultancy heads up this firm uh, an outstanding coastal engineering firm in fact a little bit later uh, in this episode we will have an update for you on one of the projects that he has uh served as the lead engineer on so uh more from michael poff to come but uh he's an outstanding guy great firm learn more about him at the best coastal engineering website on the internet coastalengineering.com and finally, Frederique Barrasset and her team of dune restoration specialists at Dune Doctors out of Pensacola, Florida. It's, uh, these guys can take you from concept through permitting and into the planting and restoration of a, a dune system in Florida on the Atlantic seaboard. Find Frederique and her team at dunedoctors.com. Our first guest is coming at us all the way from the big island of Hawaii uh, near the little town of Hilo, all the way over on the eastern uh, side. (laughs) First time appearance on the American Shoreline Podcast Network, my very own father, Bob Buckingham. Dad, how are you doing today? Uh, Aloha. It's awfully nice to to hear from you, son, and uh, best wishes. Well, uh, Dad, this is our Memorial Day kickoff, so the purpose of this show is we're going around the country, and we're checking in with people who are all over the American shoreline, and uh, you are on a very uh, iconic and beautiful shoreline there in the middle of the Pacific Ocean. Tell us about today. What's the weather like? Well, we've had uh, bits and pieces of rain, uh, very, very light rain showers, followed by sun. Uh, It comes in and out. Temperature right now is probably... Oh, 76 to 78 degrees, uh, and it's, um, I don't know, was it mid-morning here, about nine, about just under 10 o'clock. Sounds like a beautiful day, and uh, share with the audience a little bit about uh, the location you're in, the little town of Hilo, and, and what you like about the area. Hilo is a amazing town. I, uh, it's, it's probably one of the best-kept secrets of, of Hawaii. Uh, it's, uh, it's a legitimate uh, town with uh, deep roots involving uh, the history of Hawaii. Uh, the nice thing about Hilo is that it still has a lot of Hawaiian tradition to it. It hasn't been overwhelmed with the 
tourism and hotels and uh, all the all the creed or the the creed that comes with that. So it kind of has a genuine feel to it, and because of that, I really enjoy it. Go ahead, Peter. Well, uh, Dr. Buckingham, I have to ask, I, I understand this is your first weekend on Hilo as a homeowner. Uh, yes, it is. <laughs> and what a wonderful vibe that is. Very relaxing, very comfortable. And uh, one thing you can say about Hawaii, uh, especially in this Hilo area, there's almost every property that you that you get onto has a tremendous view, either up the mountain or down to the ocean. Well, I hear they call it paradise, and so that's why we wanted to start the uh, Memorial Weekend kickoff uh, show in, I think, what many people would say is the most beautiful beaches in America, no offense to all our friends down in Florida, especially in the Panhandle, which can be pretty damn nice, but uh, Hawaii, it's our island state. Well, and I, interestingly, this is a kind of a cliff face, you know, very volcanic island, cliff face uh, situation that you have. And you have been trying to uh, solidify your shoreline using a natural method. Tell us a little bit about this vetiver grass operation you're working on. Well, uh, first of all, I want to say that uh, I feel very, very fortunate to be in this in this situation uh it was quite fortuitous and um i'm obviously happy about it um the one thing that people forget about when they come to hawaii are the numbers of waterfalls and they're everywhere and they oftentimes are right on the beach um the waves here are also spectacular there's a lot of great surfing uh, day in and day out so one of the problems that has, that has occurred, I would say, in the last 10 years with global warming has been the intensity of storms, including hurricanes. And uh, the result of these hurricanes has produced quite a bit of erosion along the coast and flooding. So uh, to manage this, um, I've been planting what's called vetiver grass, which uh, has a lot of advantages compared to, say, seawalls or concrete uh, or other types of uh, embankments. Uh, Vetiver has uh, various very light weight, and it has a root system that goes down up uh, to 15 feet. Uh, so when you plant the vetiver, so when you plant the vetiver in rows, you in essence get a natural seawall of about 15 feet down. Uh, so I'm excited about this opportunity, and I, I, I think it's, it's going to be successful. Well, Dad, it's really cool that you got there. Uh, you know, it, you are an interesting uh, case. You, here we have a real-life person who uh, uh, knew about an eroding shoreline. Uh, <laughs> the, the property had an erosion issue, and you said, sign me up. I think we can manage this using natural means. Uh, and you're doing it. That's uh, that is pretty cool. That indeed it is. The most important thing I've learned uh, as I dove into this is that um, a barrier systems like cement and rebar or or other industrial uh, mechanics uh, may work uh, in some situations to stabilize shorelines, but the natural approach actually has a much more reverberating and uh, 
natural way of maintaining the shoreline, uh, the ecosystem is not disrupted. And in fact, it may even get better. So as opposed to cement slabs, which uh, may or may produce their own set of harm. So uh, yeah, very, very excited about this process. Um, it's very easy to knee jerk a, a cement uh, floor or concrete or rebar. Yeah, tempting. Uh, it, takes, it takes trust to go with nature, but uh, in the long run, I think it, it's a better uh, it, it, it's a better way to go. Indeed, and uh, so all you beachfront homeowners out there around the United States who are uh, looking down the barrel of perhaps some sea level rise in your own community and a little shoreline loss, take a lesson from Dr. Robert Buckingham. Use native dune plants. In fact, you can call our sponsor dune doctors they'll put that kind of stuff in for you that's right and dad uh as i recall you you tell us a little about a little bit about the guys who do this vetiver planting because they're really passionate about it and uh they they're extremely professional and it wasn't just planting the vetiver there was also a trimming back of the other native vegetation or or i should say you know the the vegetation that was there uh, initially to change kind of the weight profile of of the cliff face you know uh so that it would be less likely to tumble in well i was absolutely amazed as you know i have a science background and i actually enjoy writing about science but i was actually amazed at the the skill the cognitive awareness uh the physics of being able to understand uh the weight of say uh, vegetation which has which may be top heavy uh, and what that effect could do to erosion if uh, a wind comes along and blows it over so uh, the first thing they did when they came out here and started planning uh, for the vetiver is they cut down most of the top heavy vegetation uh, either that or, or vegetation that had a very shallow root system so that that combination um, actually was a stabilizing influence in the area of erosion because it uh, with wind and rain of course these types of plants will will fall over i gotta interrupt you because i know you didn't go to hawaii to work on shoreline restoration projects and we're about to kick off the summer so tell me what you plan to do to have fun in hawaii when uh when those guys get all this good work done congratulations by the way on the house in hilo i have seen the pictures it's magnificent and uh, what a cool town. I'm 100% with you. But now that you've got this place and you're in what, you know, this is paradise. You're in paradise. Uh, what do you plan to do for fun? Uh, every moment is fun. Uh, getting up in the morning with coffee, watching the sunrise. I, I'm, I'm, uh, I, I don't require a lot of, uh, of uh, noise to have fun. So... Uh, for me, fun is uh, watching the sun come up, uh, working a garden, hiking, uh, maybe swimming, um, interacting with friends, uh, fi- finding things that, finding questions, and then uh, looking for answers. Those that's that's what makes my world uh, move. 
You heard it straight from the man's, uh, from his lips to your ears. That is my dad. That's uh, the secret to happiness right yeah, there. there. I there believe, it is. I believe he would get 99% agreement on that, yeah. on that description. I think so. And dad, one of the cool things is that uh, you are in Hilo. You haven't spent a lot of time out there uh, and you get to explore. Uh, what have you explored so far and what are you planning on? Uh, are you planning on venturing out over the over the weekend to uh, investigate some new places or some new hikes? The thing about this part of the island is that it's just, it's just overrun with uh, vegetation and waterfalls and streams. Uh, it is just so abundant uh, that uh, you don't have to go very far. I mean, it's within minutes, uh, and certainly oftentimes within walking distance. So uh, uh, it, the, the potential for outside activity, and by the way, outdoor activity is where, for me, it's what it's about. Uh, I think as people get older in age, it's better to be outdoors than in, and what better place to be outdoors than to, to come to Hawaii uh, visit the, the island, hike, bike, um, and explore these, these streams and waterfalls, which are everywhere. So, yeah, I'm excited about this this whole venue. Well, I'm really excited for you too, Dad. Uh, <laughs> we have a few minutes left, so I want to uh, kind of shift this conversation, believe it or not, into kind of your bailiwick here. Um People, our audience will be traveling around this summer. They'll be spending a lot of time on the beach. Uh, they'll be spending a lot of time with their families. Do you have any uh, health advice uh, for for beachgoers this summer who are who are going to be out? They're going to be in the sun. Right. They might be drinking a little bit. There's some um, risks out there. Yeah. What would you what What would you suggest? What advice can you give to our audience to to make it a healthy summer on the American shoreline? Well, and we have to say your father's a medical doctor and a health professional, and uh, yeah, so that's right. He's qualified to offer this opinion. Well, the first thing is, I think everyone has to understand that uh, ultraviolet radiation in the summertime can be very damaging to the skin. So when you're when you're out on the beach or out on a barbecue or wherever you are, you the first thing you should think about is coverage. And it could be an umbrella, it could be a hat, it could be lightweight uh, shirt. But uh, I think the, I think you have to be cognizant of the the effects of sun and the damage that it can cause. And the first thought should be, I need to, I need to have coverage. You can go out in the sun uh, for, for, you know, some time and swim and, uh, you know, play ball, whatever it is you want to do. But I think the point is when you're not doing those things, you should be undercover. Uh, and uh, th that'll really help protect you. The other thing is uh, the, the sunglasses are important. Sunblock is very important, and um, just be careful with how much alcohol you drink. Yeah. Moderation <laughs> in your judgment. <laughs> That's right. Moderation, <laughs> ladies and gentlemen, the American Shoreline Podcast <laughs> Network. We do it all. Here it is: the public service announcement. Your summer safety tips from Dr. Robert Buckingham of, up. of Hilo, Hawaii. Thank you very much, Dr. Buckingham. Oh, you're welcome. Thank you. All oh, right. Wait, wait, wait. wait, wait. That, was, that was the thank you for doing the summer tips. I mean, the oh, safety okay. tips. I wasn't trying to say thank you. <laughs> I think we got a little more to talk about with your dad. Okay, well, let's just, let's just keep rolling. Dad, you're still on, right? 
<laughs> I'm still here. All right, we're going to keep it going. Well, I'm just curious over there in Hilo. I, I mean, when I was looking at the volcano uh, last year, it looked to me that the flows were in that area of Hawaii. Is that true? Well, you know, the, the, the flows of lava are uh, some look at whimsical uh, at, at first blush. But there are parts of uh, Hilo that were affected. There are other parts of the island that were also affected. Yeah. Um, you know, it's it's not, to me it's almost whimsical where the lava flows. But uh, I think the point is um, that's that's a sad situation. Uh, I think 700 homes in the in the Big Island were lost from the lava flows um, one to two years ago. So uh, that's a serious problem, uh, but but it didn't deter you. True, uh, but at the same time, you have to understand that there uh, these. I think there are two of them, and they're over. I think they're over eleven thousand to almost twelve thousand feet high. These volcanoes, and they have what makes them very interesting is that it gives this island nine different um, ecosystems, uh, which I think is the only place in the world that has nine <clears throat> within within a small radius like this. So you have arid conditions, you have almost almost near desert conditions, you have these very tropical conditions where I am, you have, uh, uh, you have also some snow conditions and almost fall, four-season conditions when you go up the mountain slope. So it's very interesting. I think the only... And the shoreline. Uh, Don't forget the shoreline. You know, we got yeah, the, the coastal the shoreline. Yeah. So you've got all of this in this small island. It's just really spectacular to have all of this, these eco-environments uh, within a couple of hours of driving. It's, uh, it's fairly amazing. Wow. Well, from the paradise state, the state of Hawaii, Dr. Robert Buckingham. Dad, thanks for coming on the program. Thank you very much. It's been a pleasure. Come on. Hello. Hey, Ruben Trevino. It's Peter Ravella and Tyler Buckingham. And you are on. And you are on the American Shoreline podcast. How are you? I'm doing great. Just juggling um, hot potatoes like usual before holiday weekend. <laughs> Hey, so uh, just to set the stage, we were just over in Hilo, Hawaii with uh, Dr. Robert Buckingham, Tyler's father, and now we're scooting down to the Gulf Coast. We're here with Ruben Trevino. He's the beach manager for the Galveston County Park Board of Trustees. He runs the show down there in Galveston County and the Galveston beaches, and uh, this is the most popular beach in Texas. Are you ready? I'll just take a quick minute to correct where I work. I work for the Park Board of uh, Director Director of Operations for the Galveston Park Board of Trustees for the City of Galveston. So oh, actually, right. our, our of the City of Galveston, not the county. All right. Well, Ruben, but, uh, you are currently in the process of getting ready for the kickoff of summer. Uh, fill the audience in with your the operational uh, might that you the force that you're bringing to bear here to get your beaches ready for action. Well, you never know what the Gulf's going to throw at us. We've had high tides and high winds for the last three or four days that really have left the beaches. Uh, and, you know, 
water basically flooded our beach parks because the tide came in so high. It was probably the higher king tide we had of the year. We've had a few of them this April, but this one actually got into the beach, and beach parking lots and flooded the parking lots. Um, and when that happens, there's not a drop in the rain, but our, our parking lots get flooded like we've had a monsoon come through. So for our beach parks, we've been working on basically pumping the water out of them uh, because natural percolation takes a while when you're right there on the beach on top of the water table. Uh, so for the beach parks, you know, we've got to make sure our beach parking lots are accessible. And, you know, sometimes it's it's pushing loose sand to make sure cars don't get stuck. But right now it's pumping water out of the parking lot so that way people can roll around not worry about uh, uh, causing damage to the car. And, then and uh, along, along the beaches, all the beaches, we're actually seeing this first uh, year sign of sargasm coming in. With these strong direct south winds we've been having all week, it's basically pushing all of that offshore pelagic material that just floats around, uh, usually parallel to our coast, it's pushing it onshore right now. So we're dealing with probably more seaweed on our beach this week than I've seen in the three years I've been here in Galveston. Wow. That says a lot because there's been some pretty good seaweed uh, uh, storms on the Texas coast. Yeah. But, you know, we've got a federal permit to go out there and relocate it when the conditions are right. But we, we take a real environmental approach about it, and, uh, and we try to balance tourism with that with that approach. Uh, you know, it is Memorial Day weekend, so we will be out there at 3 in the morning. Uh, tomorrow morning to get the job started, we will be off the beaches by 9 or 10 a.m., the latest. And uh, we hope to provide a great experience for people coming down. But we could have done this on Monday or Tuesday, but really with the beach conditions, the high tides, the high winds, it doesn't make much sense to go out there and uh, disturb Mother Nature and uh, what you know the natural um, seaweed accumulation is doing for for the beach. But when it's holiday time, we take an approach where you know a lot of people coming in. We also got to sustain business and the good image. So we try to keep a balanced approach. And we'll be out there tomorrow, getting the beaches ready for the weekend, and, and we're not concerned um, with, with being able to tackle that. Well, I'm I'm confident that you and your outstanding team, Ruben, uh, you have a great team that works for you. Uh, we'll get it done there. Uh, Galveston is a resurgent beach town. Uh, for a long time, it had kind of a reputation of being seedy or, you know, it just wasn't the most desirable spot. And it's really coming back largely, I believe, because uh, the beaches have been rebuilt. But Ruben, for our audience who doesn't know a darn thing about Galveston, paint the picture of what summertime is like on the island and uh and how the population what you're expecting this weekend in particular what will what will it be like well having the third or fourth largest population within a 60 minute drive really we're we're weather dependent uh as far as how busy the streets are going to be uh traffic wise and our beaches uh you know if it's sunny and sunshiny and it gets hot in houston like it does right about now this time of year people will jump in their car and, and come down here and enjoy the day spend the night um you know we see the steady increase in visitation since 2009 we uh i mean we've estimated 7.2 million visitors last year uh, visited Galveston Island, and that was two hundred that was uh, two hundred thousand more than the previous year, and a half a million before uh, above two years ago. So we've had a steadily increase in visitation. We're getting to the point where we're starting to target more um, more folks who, you know, I guess a lot of our marketing now we're starting to brought into environmental stuff, birding, the fishing, 
you know, the reasons that we people who live here chose to move here, we want people who visit here to appreciate those things, not just the beach. The beach is, of course, a, the, the first draw. But when you get out there at the Eastern Lagoon or in these back bay wetlands and you see the birds, the migrations, there's so much more uh, to Galveston Island being on a barrier island just environmental-wise. And then the other part of, of Galveston is just the history, the rich history, the buildings, the Victorian homes, the you know, if you don't like the beach, there's a great little downtown area, very similar to like Royal Street or Frenchman's down in, in New Orleans, where it's, it's a nice adult area where you can go and enjoy your family as well, or enjoy an afternoon, yeah. not necessarily on the beach. So, you know, we really got something for all beach people and uh, people who, who just want to come out and enjoy some good food and some great environment. That's right. And you got a Ferris wheel on a pier. I mean, come on. That's yeah, amazing. Yeah, you got a, you got the pleasure <laughs> pier, yeah. Beach Ferris wheel, right on your pier. I mean, it's one of the great beach towns in America. You know, the, the famous Galveston Island seawall is right in front of those beaches that Ruben works his ass off to keep wide with dunes and looking good for the public. Um, but, uh, yeah, it's a great city. The, the history was the wealthiest city in, in, in Texas before the 1900 hurricane killed 6,000 people in Galveston, Texas, and really prompted the development of Houston uh, in the inland port of Houston. Absolutely. I mean, we're their, we're their, their backyard. Uh, they come down here to play whenever they want. And, uh, you know, I think that's what I've most enjoyed working with Galveston, learning its history and really how much uh, it's had to do with how Texas was just shaped, you know, and how it all started through here. It was a really important place. And I guess if you're from if, a, a good way to think about it we were beating this it's close to Houston thing to death but it's like Coney Island like it is the closest beach to Houston uh, and yep. it's uh, so if you want to make the beeline to the beach you're going to go to Galveston and uh, there are it's it's got a real beach town vibe man which is one of the things that really strikes me about the place is it's a it, you know there's like old buildings there and it's got some old bones to it but it's still got that party beach town vibe i mean there anyone from new jersey from the eastern seaboard would could understand the vibe of houston it is just a great galveston excuse me galveston it is a great 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 beach town on the american shoreline now uh one of the things that you can expect are all those people in houston are going to drive in and you were talking about your parking situation and this this king tide flooding that you're dealing with. Uh, let's let's dive into that a little bit. You're pumping the water out now, so it sounds like you'll be good to go, of course, for the weekend. Uh, but is this a is this a a problem that is emerging? Is this a an issue that we should keep our eye on here over at uh, on the American Shoreline Podcast Network and Coastal News Today? Yeah, I mean, actually, we're right in the middle of a drainage study that, you know, in about two months from now, I should have construction documents uh, to basically do the repair project at one of my main beach parks. Uh, Stewart Beach has been there for 75 years. Um, and what we hope to do with that is actually apply for some CMP funding to help get it constructed. Uh, we're using all green infrastructure. It's nothing but sand, vegetated swells. We do need a road. We do need to raise the main road that already exists. We're not looking to expand the road, but we do need to raise it so we can put ditches and culverts and make sure we're kind of biofiltering the water before it hits the coast. You know, 
uh, we are what we well, through our study what we found was we were actually being uh, poured on by our neighbors. A lot of the water drains down the seawall and from some neighboring properties right under our parking lot. Wow. So it well, basically builds up in there until it gets high enough and blows out the front part of the beach, cause, causing a major washout. Um, Don't want that. So it's water quality issues. It's erosion issues. So, yeah, we're, we're watching it closely. The, we're, we invested a couple of hundred thousand dollars in engineering and design, and we're hoping to hopefully do some construction to do some green infrastructure improvements and work with the existing area and environment to, you know, secure public access to make sure that parking lot that holds, I believe, about 5,000 cars is accessible for Texas uh, citizens and other people that want to come and visit Texas beaches. Uh, you know, so it's important that we get it figured yeah. out. Well, it's, it is a high priority, and I know you make it a high priority there at the Park Board of Trustees, but Ruben... Uh, you know, I just think we got to pause and to say to all the beach managers around the United States and uh, up down the Atlantic side and around the Gulf and out in California, listen, it is a lot of work. I mean, what you just went through and what you have to contend with and the millions of people who come to the beach, uh, you know, for all of the beach managers out there going into uh, Memorial Day weekend, I just want to wish everybody Good luck this weekend, safe and happy, and, you know, hopefully there's a lot of good parking fees so you can uh, pick up the trash. <laughs> I appreciate that. You know, people think uh, think those pennies and dimes fall from the sky like magic. Keep those uh, toilets clean and the sidewalk clean and sand on the beaches um, and walkways accessible, but it doesn't. You know, that somebody's got to pay for it, and it rightfully show it's a beach user so yeah people using it should maintain it well ladies and gentlemen ruben trevino the the director of operations for the galveston park board of trustees down in galveston texas uh thanks for being on the american shoreline podcast and have a great memorial day weekend ruben you all too i really appreciate the opportunity to talk to y'all All right, next up, we're taking a trip up to Astoria, Oregon, the beautiful coast up there in Astoria, Oregon, and we're connecting with Steve Fick. Steve, how are you doing? Hey, I'm doing fine today. It's uh, We're coming into the Memorial Day weekend and, and looking forward to a little relaxation for the weekend. And it's uh, the start of the summer for us up here, actually. Do you Does Astoria attract a, a, a chunk of people on Memorial Day weekend typically? Uh, yeah, uh, from now on until Labor Day, we'll, we'll have a lot of people coming through the area. Uh, it's a, it's a great spot to visit. Um, we've got a lot of, uh, history here. We've got some, uh, recreational fishing opportunities, good camping. We got a great camp, uh, site out there at Fort Stevens, which, uh, the state manages and, uh, so there's lots of opportunities here. Absolutely. You know, <clears throat> Astoria, Oregon, and for those people around the country who haven't looked at a map lately, is the is the port city. Is the It's at the mouth of the mighty Columbia River, which drains uh, from Major Idaho and uh, Montana all across the west. The biggest river on the west coast of the United States. And Astoria uh, is historically been one of the more challenging ports to operate out of but also a place uh with a great history in fisheries and uh for all you folks out there uh steve fick is the owner of fish hawk fisheries in astoria oregon uh talk to us about the fishing industry and the tourism and the people in the summertime up there when it comes to fishing sure okay well 
Uh, I'm in the seafood industry here. We process salmon, uh, crab. Uh, we do albacore tuna, shrimp, some uh, ocean fish such as rockfish. Um, those are the items that my plant uh, processes there. Um, we've got a wealth of history on the West Coast here. It's it's the oldest city uh, west of the Mississippi, and uh, we've we've had a fishing industry here since about 1860. And wow. um, so it's it's rich in history. We got wonderful museums here. There's there's a lot of stuff to do. So. Well, I have a question for you, Steve. Uh, we had a, a fella on uh, another one of our podcasts on the network, uh, the Next Swell podcast, Matt Love, uh, who wrote a book about the in in Oregon. Apparently, there's a beach culture that involves beach forts, and I was wondering if you have heard of beach of this beach fort drift. I mean, these are made out of driftwood. Is this something that you're familiar with? No, I I, I think that's I think that's a wise tale. I, I've never heard of it. See, this is why you got to go to fishermen. That's where we go first, Dan. Yeah, yeah. Beach Fort. Yeah, I no, I have not heard of that. I'll be this honest. Is, this yeah. is why we go straight to uh, to fishermen. Uh, they they there's such thing, I guess, as fish stories, but when it comes to beach shack stories, none none to be seen. Hey, Steve, yeah. I got I don't get to talk to a commercial fish processor very often, so I really wanted to uh, dive into something a little bit more along the lines of that. Uh, what What are you seeing in the health of the fishery off of uh, the Pacific Northwest, say from Oregon up to up to Alaska, uh, it, as a general matter? And uh, are you seeing and feeling in the effects of climate in that part of the world? Climate change. Am I seeing the effects of what? climate change on on the fishery in that part of the world well it's interesting i've i've been in the seafood industry since i was 18 and uh, i got a bachelor's degree out of the university of oregon but I'd, I'd always been in the industry and i started uh at uh, age 21 in alaska and the first year that uh, i came up to alaska which i spent almost all of my time in kenai which is in cook inlet and the first year I remember driving back up to Anchorage and at Portage Glacier, it was absolutely chucker blocked with ice in August. Today, you can't see the glacier three miles up into the Portage Glacier area. Wow. So, yeah, um, we've certainly seen some warming there. Um, you know, interestingly enough, um, we still have pretty similar types of uh, weather in Oregon on, a, on the coast there, except for we have a little less snow in the winter, I think, than we used to, I remember as a, as a kid. We still have snow. We'll have snow events two or three times a year sometimes, uh, but they're not as severe and as long as what I've seen before sometimes. Hmm. And so, Yeah, I think we've seen some global warming effects. In the health of the fishery up there, um, what what kind of uh, what's the relationship between I don't know if you know this off the top of your head, but you know the commercial fishing take in the in the region or out of Astoria versus the recreational take. Um, and as a processor, do you deal with uh, you know somebody goes down and catches a few salmon offshore? Can they bring it over to night uh, fish hawk fisheries or are you well, just strictly commercial? We process only commercial fish, but what we do is we do buy tuna fish from commercial harvesters, and what we do is we process that into uh, tuna loins, and one of the popular things up here is for people to can their own tuna. So we do that, 
you know, that is from a recreational standpoint. We do sell some salmon roe for uh, steelhead and salmon bait, trout bait. Uh, but most of our focus is commercial up here. And, um, you know, the, the relationship between uh, uh, sport and commercial, like with the salmon fishery, uh, we have, you know, we have different sharing equations for different different right. salmon runs on the columbia not a not a simple matter uh i i have noticed this year we've covered it a lot in coastal news today about the uh california sea lion problem in astoria and up the columbia river all the way up to the bonneville dam and and uh the very big and notable decision this year by u.s fish and wildlife to uh to, to allow those seals to be shot in order to... Uh, they called several hundred of them, right? I believe I, I believe they have. Can you talk about that issue? How does that play in Astoria? Well, well, first of all, I, I don't believe they're going to shoot several hundred of them. They're California well, sea lions, primarily non-breeding males, which spend about 10 months of the year in Astoria. And they, they go to California in the summertime. And then they show up in uh, late August again. They'll be leaving here soon, and then they show back up. We've got a biomass of over 250,000 in the region here, which... uh, Strong strong population. Very strong population, which uh, is is having an adverse effect on, on a lot of our salmon runs. So, you know, I've always said there is no balance in nature, but this is a extreme unbalanced situation is starting to occur here and there's not the natural predators um that there once was in the estuaries you know uh, affecting the sea lions so um it, it is a is a, a significant problem particularly for salmon uh but it's not the only problem facing salmon how how's your outlook uh in the future with regard to that fishery are you uh obviously things are changing uh but you know fisheries have you know we've at least in u.s waters we have made an attempt to manage these things obviously what we're seeing around the american shoreline is that the fish are moving and that the laws are kind of lagging behind the migrations that are happening and the changes that are happening but I'm curious to know if you're optimistic, if you if you think we'll be able to figure this out, and if the commercial operators that you're working with are wanting this to be a sustainable uh, system, and therefore will you know really willingly and be looking for ways to be adaptive. Well, my industry has always been a strong advocate for sustainability. We've we've got five and six generations of uh, families that have made their livelihoods on the on the columbia river for instance when we're talking about salmon uh i've had a lot of people work for me and my my plant that uh made enough money to go to college and make their own life choices uh once they got some education i i always joke uh, i got a surgeon in town here now that her, she her had her first surgery on on uh salmon when she was 18 in my plant so it, it it's a huge it's a it's a huge uh, viable resource for us. I've always been optimistic for the future, and what it's really going to take, we, we politically and as a society, we're going to have to have the courage to recognize what the changes are, uh, make some of our own changes, um, keep all the user groups together, so you have a strong advocacy for the natural resources, and try to educate the general public 
on on the importance of natural resource. Wow. You know, when we look at our commercial fisheries, um, when they start putting hydro projects into the Columbia River, we absolutely demanded back in 1937, 38, when they were putting Bonneville in, at least yeah. they put a fish ladder in. They did. They didn't put a fish ladder in, and um, millions of fish would have been lost uh, with no opportunity for recovery if we it, wouldn't have done that. You know, it but is. But did that. Well, I, I think that is it is kind of a remarkable testament to the foresight of Oregonians when it comes to the environment, and natural resource issues. I mean, say what you want about the timber industry and the effects that there is a real ethic up there. And uh, when people were thinking about salmon runs in 1937, you know they're looking down the road, and uh, that's pretty early for that kind of consideration yeah. to be built into a federal dam project. It, it's a really uh, a challenging uh, river to manage. There's over 200 wild stocks of salmon and steelhead to manage, and another 200 plus um, runs of now hatchery produced salmon yeah. that go into the system. Over, I believe it's over a quarter million square miles that this watershed is managed for, and it's a extremely complicated fishery. Uh, you know, with sharing of water users, transportation, recreational, tribal, and commercial fisheries. And it's, uh, but it is somewhere we can move forward if we all are willing to work and, and, um, as you know, the old adage, make a better wheel. That's right. Well, it can't all be going wrong because Fishhawk Fisheries is in business in Astoria, and I suspect you're not the only fish processor in town. So some of those, some of those management decisions have uh, gotten us here. Well, what we have is is our industry has has significantly shrunk from where it was. Hmm. When, uh, you know, 50 years ago, we had 25 salmon processors in the lower Columbia River. Uh, now we have a total of, I believe, uh, four, five, five major processors of seafood. So our our industry has downsized, but at the same time. It's expanded in some other fisheries, such as whiting, shrimp, some of these that didn't exist. Well, and the rockfish are coming back commercially, and I think we're in the first open season of West Coast rockfish right now, aren't we? Well, yeah, we certainly have directed fisheries now that we didn't have. They were more of an incidental take to access other uh, seafood stocks in the past few years, and we've had a tremendous recovery of rockfish in the ocean. Yes, that's correct. As a general rule, yes, that's correct. And you got to give us a couple of seconds on crab. I understand you processed that as well. Uh, what's the state of the the the, the Dungeness crab fishery? I understand has been under some stress. How is that fishery holding together? Well, it, it's really interesting. You know, our Dungeness season uh, starts either in December or January, usually depending on the quality of the crab. Yeah. And eighty percent of the harvest takes place in the first four to five weeks. And the fishery goes into the summer, but most of the volume is caught in the winter. One of the challenges right now we're having is demoic acid, which can come into the to the crab, and that that brings into hmm. the question of acidic oceans, warmer water. Why do we have more demoic acid issues than we used to have? Right. So we all that is always being tested every week to make sure that we don't get into a situation where we're catching 
uh, product and processing it uh, when it shouldn't be consumed. Right. The other issue we're having right now is whales, uh, particularly in California, certain times of the year, there's entanglement issues. Yeah. And yeah. so we're working, working with management. The, the uh, crab industry is working with management so that we can um, minimize those those impacts so some of the the gear is pulled out of the water in certain areas that uh, particularly in the springtime yeah when you're having gray whale migrations well this is uh this is a very important issue and i know that crabbers on the atlantic shoreline are doing the same thing with the uh, right whale entanglement problem it's lobster traps primarily uh up in maine mm-hmm. but uh these uh this this whaling season, the whale season on the West Coast has been interesting this year. I think there are 39 reported uh, California gray whale uh, deaths that have washed ashore along the, on the, along the West Coast. And what I'm reading about is they, they're malnourished. I don't know what, what, what are you hearing? Well, there's, there's a couple things you got to remember here. Number one is everything dies. So some of them are natural deaths. You know, you get old, you die. That's That's true. The malnourished thing and the entanglements, part of the concern is that it's been a two-edged sword in that we got more whales, but because you have more whales, you're going to have more competition for food and you're going to have more possibilities statistically of entanglement with uh, credit gear. Yeah, that's true. So, you know, we've, we've, you know, particularly with gray whales, uh, as an example, we've, we brought them back. They're in very healthy uh, stocks right now, and um, so that's good. Yeah, it is. So good. we still want to continue to minimize any kind of impact to those whales or any whales, and um, you you know, and you're going to see the the challenge for them competing with other animals such as sea lions. You yeah. know, sea lions yeah. eat a lot of the same stuff, and and um, so there's a balance there, and there's you know there's always been a natural uh, occurrence. That's true, with, and I think that and in all species, you know, and so and real progress uh, has absolutely been made. Um, but uh, Steve uh, Steve Fick, the owner of Fishhawk Fisheries in Astoria, Oregon, and having lived up in Oregon for eight years, I think. God, what a beautiful coastline. It's ridiculously beautiful. Beautiful place to spend Memorial Day. Uh, So, uh, Steve, thanks a lot for taking the time to be on the American Shoreline podcast and and teach us what's, uh, what's all going on up there in Astoria, Oregon. Thank you. Thank you. Nice talking with you. All right, Peter. Well, uh, we just took quite a little trip here uh, around the shoreline, uh, beginning in Hawaii with Dad. Yeah. That was pretty cool. That was very cool. It was great to talk to your dad on his first weekend as a Hilo homeowner. I thought that was good timing. I I think he's uh, enjoying it and looking forward to Memorial Day. Then we went down to Galveston, Texas, on the Gulf of Mexico shoreline, of course, to talk to Ruben Trevino, the director of operations. Thanks a lot, Ruben. That was cool. Really getting ready for what will be a, I'm sure, a party vibe uh, there in Galveston. <laughs> no doubt. In a couple days, so he's got to get ready for that. Uh, and then we we got on a plane and go up to the Pacific Northwest to a yeah. beautiful uh, area, Astoria, Oregon. Tell us about Astoria, Peter. 
Well, you know, mouth of the Columbia River. Um, many people don't know this, but the Lewis and Clark expedition, when it reached the Oregon coast after they came down the Columbia River, got to Astoria and they overwintered there with the Native American community in Astoria, Oregon. That was Lewis and Clark. That's part of the history of that wow. town. Cool town. Cool town. Yeah. Cool town. So that was fun. Yeah. That's only part one. Part two is coming up shortly. Uh but we want to wish you a very happy Memorial Day weekend. Uh, be safe, have a great time, be relaxed, and thank you for listening to the American Shoreline Podcast Network. Down on the-